You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. My guest on the podcast today is Vanessa Bonds, who is a social psychologist and professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and Harvard Business Review, and her research has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and NPR's Hidden Brain. She has a new book. It's called You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Vanessa Bonds, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. When we started our collaboration at the University of Chicago, uh, Professor Nick Epley observed one of my wife's classes at Second City. And she had three of her students do an improv exercise in which a host translate the, translates the gibberish of one person to the other person and vice versa, going back and forth. And after the exercise, Nick asked the person doing the translation if they thought they were correctly communicating what each person was intending to communicate. And they said, yeah, absolutely. They were pretty sure they understood what was being uh, suggested. And the other two participants said that that was 100% wrong. <laughs> they didn't get anywhere near And in the introduction to your book, you write about a very simple single task study that you did with fellow social psychologist Erica Boothby. And I want you to tell us about that study, if you could, because I think it's a great way to kick off this conversation. Yeah, sure thing. So basically, we brought participants into the lab and we told them you're going to go out into the world and give people compliments. And at the first time we did this, we gave them a specific compliment they were to give people because we just wanted to standardize it as much as possible. And we were like, you're going to go up to somebody of the same gender, just so there's no like misinterpretation or anything, um, and say, hey, I like your shirt. And before you do that, we're going to have you fill out uh, a series of questions about how much you think that's going to make the other person feel good and flattered and how much they're going to enjoy your interaction. So they went out and they did this and they went up to people and said, hey, I like your shirt. And then they would hand them an envelope. And in the envelope, we asked that person, how flattered do you feel? How much did you enjoy this interaction? And then they brought those envelopes back to the lab and we had the the other person seal it so that our participants couldn't actually see what the other person said. And we compared what they thought would happen to what people actually said 
they felt. And it turns out that our participants thought that people would feel kind of annoyed uh, Mm -hmm. at being bothered by being interrupted, right? But in fact, people felt really happy because they got a compliment. Um, And so basically what we showed is that people tend to underestimate, you know, the power of just some simple kind words on other people. So what I love about both those things, it's all the different ways in which we get it wrong, right? So we overestimate our ability to understand certain things, like we get it. And and then we underestimate the the willingness of people to like go along with us and and follow us. And it's like, that's what's so fascinating about this book is it's like, it's, it's, it's many different sort of, they're not mistakes so much as writers or misconceptions about our place in the world with other people. Yeah, absolutely. I, errors or biases, uh, basically just mistakes about uh, how we're going to impact other people. So for example, a lot of our studies are similar to what I just described, where we basically kind of ask people, what's your intuition of how this interaction is going to go, or your intuition about how you're going to impact somebody else in this situation. And it turns out that our intuitions are often wrong when we actually go out and test them. And that's what we get to see. You know, what's your intuition? Now go test it. And then we kind of compare the two. And you write in the book, quote, my goal in writing this book isn't to help you gain influence, but to make you more aware of the influence you already have but don't realize. So essentially there's innate influence that we have as human beings walking in the world that we're not readily tapping into. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, if you look at most of the books on influence out there, there are just so many books on how to gain influence, right? You know, use these kinds of tricks or, you know, these kinds of bells and whistles. Um, And as a social psychologist who studies social influence and has done that for quite a while, I see all the time how much influence we have over other people. And so it's not so much, you know, that we actually are lacking in influence and need all those tricks and tips, you know, no matter how popular they might be, but actually that we seem to be missing something in the influence that we actually have. And so the book is really about what is it that we miss as we walk through our everyday lives and kind of fail to see the way we impact people all the time. There's a story you tell in the book, and I, I think about this because I literally was in Washington, D.C. Uh, that day that that incident happened with Ty Cobb, the lawyer. Um, I, I, and I was like, walked by that restaurant right around that time. I didn't go in or anything. Uh, but can you talk about that and then how that relates to a thing you call the invisibility cloak illusion? Yeah, that is so funny. Um, I love that you were there. So basically, you know, these two Trump lawyers were out dining at a very popular restaurant outdoors in public talking about some very sensitive information. And we only know this because a New York Times reporter happened to be sitting at the table next door or right next to them and overheard this entire incredibly sensitive conversation about all sorts of things about, you know, the Russia probe and um, all sorts of interworkings of the Trump campaign and people who worked for Trump. Um, and so the, the sort of question there is how could two people be just kind of talking about these things out in the open uh, so casually, right? And so Erica Boothby, one of my colleagues who I write about in the book, has sort of an explanation for this that she calls the invisibility cloak. And it's basically the idea that 
we often walk around in the world feeling like no one's really paying attention to us, that we're kind of in our own little bubble that we're in, an invisibility cloak. Um, And because of that, we tend to underestimate the extent to which other people actually are paying attention to us. Um, I also, with some other colleagues, have uh, a similar effect that we call the illusion of anonymity. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's basically like if you you put on sunglasses and you walk around and you feel like totally anonymous, even though you are not invisible in sunglasses, right? People can see you. And so we show in our studies that people are willing to like cheat more when they have sunglasses on uh, because they feel like, you know, they are somehow invisible and other people aren't seeing them. I wonder what the masks do to us. Cause I certainly feel a little more invisible when I wear a mask. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, there was a lot of work in the past on something called de-individuation, where it's basically like we don't we feel less of an individual when we're kind of wearing a uniform or you know cloaked right. in some way. And yeah, it, it's possible that the masks are doing that. I, it's funny, and it, I found it very interesting how people are sort of countering that by picking really like cute masks or you know right. masks that sort of match their outfit. And I feel like people are really trying to sort of individuate uh, themselves yeah. using the mask, almost to fight against that. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I really want to dig into your chapter about the power of being in the audience. I've worked my entire life in interactive theater, right? We create our content in conversation with our audience. There is a deep and, and, and deep and often troubling bond between uh, these worlds. Uh, uh, you write in the book, quote, performers too have many exasperating stories about the behavior of audience members, audience members who simply assume the person on stage wasn't paying attention to them. These stories I could tell you about what people were doing in the front row at Second City that are not suitable for any podcast. I mean, a lot. I love it. I love it. That resonates because, you know, I talk about even like teaching in a big lecture hall, right? You look around and the people in the audience think that they're invisible. So I used to have kids like making out in the back of my lecture hall and I could see them. It's like, I can see you. Um, And then I talk about like Patty Lapone, like grabbing someone's cell phone because they were on it right when she was performing. Um, But yeah, I love that that resonates. And I thought it might... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's a, a famous uh, Stephen Colbert was on stage when this happened, when David Copperfield came to a show, asked to be sat in the back and just made out with his supermodel girlfriend during the whole show. Like, Copperfield, <laughs> why are you here? That's amazing. I love yeah. it. Uh, so one thing that was interesting in here is, so I'm married uh, to a longtime improv and comedy uh, director, writer, teacher, uh, Mari Fan Libra, who runs the first ever BA in comedy writing and performance. She's a tenured comedy professor. Um, and she has a theory around, uh, in the improv, we do perspective taking, where we come to the audience for suggestions and pull them up. But what she says stand-up comics do is perspective giving. They have to give you a way to understand who they are in the first five minutes so you know how to laugh at them. And that felt like very tied into what you were talking about here with like audience tuning and and, and that relationship. So can you dig into some of the stuff that you discovered around audience? Yeah, I'm so curious to hear more about your take on that too, because yeah, so when I talk about stand-up comedians, right? A lot of them test out their material and they really work their material until uh, they make it what the audience wants, you know, and and that's part of the power of the audience. You know, when the audience laughs at a bit that you you roll with it, right? You lean into that, you use that bit again. And if they don't, you throw it out. Um, And so it's all about 
tuning to the audience and the audience really shaping, you know, what the person in the front of the room is saying. And so we tend to think of the power dynamic in a room like that as like, oh, the person on the stage, you know, with the microphone is a person clearly in power. And you really realize, especially when you think about like stand-up comedy, right, how much power there is in the audience and how much we do notice, you know, again, in a lecture hall, I see my, you know, students nodding and I kind of know if they're getting something and I change what I'm saying a little bit based on the expressions that I'm seeing. It's kind of a similar sort of thing as in like stand up. Yeah. in uh, true with improv too. I mean, and you be, I mean, it's interesting, right. Of all the art forms, because comedy doesn't work if they're not laughing and to get everyone laughing at the same time kind of seems like a superpower when you think about it. Right. Cause you don't get this in the other forms of like tr- traditional acting or even music so, so much, you know, during, during the performance. And I think that what you notice when you're honing material is it's often like, you know, it's not maybe that the thing you're saying or the joke isn't working. It's like, oh, you got to slot it differently. You need to do that later in the act. It's too, it's too rough too early, or you have to cheat your body in a certain way. So there's all these different things that you learn uh, and, and tricks you're trying out. Um, I thought what was interesting too is, um, uh, I'm looking for this quote. Yeah, quote, audiences don't just influence the messages in which they're exposed. They also influence the beliefs of the messengers who convey them. So that's a leap. That's not just a me fine-tuning to get you. That's actually me changing because of you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so basically, and you know, we're talking about this in this more formalized setting where it's like when I'm on stage, I'm tuning to my audience. But this is something we do all the time, right? Even when we're just talking one-on-one, we tune the things we say to our audience. So like, if I know that you really like this restaurant I went to dinner at last night, I'm not going to go talk to you about how much I hated that restaurant. I'm going to soften whatever I say, even if I did hate it, right? Mm -hmm. Knowing that you liked it. So I'm going to tune my message to you, knowing your likes and attitudes and things like that. Um, And on top of that, there's something called the saying is believing effect. So once I do say that, right, once I tune my message to you, and I see that you're kind of nodding along and agreeing, and we've kind of created the shared understanding, all of a sudden, I start to believe that a little bit more. So there's um, a classic study where they had people listen to this very neutral case about the legalization of marijuana. And then they told people either that they were going to tell somebody that was for legalization about, you know, this uh, thing that they had listened to or someone who was against it. And people totally tuned their message depending on who they were talking to. And then subsequent research has shown that once you do that, now a week later, you know, people's attitudes have shifted a little bit, not because anyone tried to convince them of anything, but because they tuned their message to somebody else. So it really shows the power of the audience. The audience didn't even argue for something. And yet your assumptions about their beliefs make you talk about something different. And that changes your own attitude. I was talking about this because I had just read that chapter before I went on the radio with John Williams, who's on WGN as well. And I mentioned that this, this study to him and these ideas, and he had j- just finished this book about Trump. And he says, this is exactly what happened early pandemic where they were coming to him and saying, you know, like, no, no, you'd like his, his advisors, like, get on this, let's do the masking. But that's not what his audience was digging. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And someone just told me and I, that he was at a rally recently and he was like, oh, you guys should all get vaccinated. And then everybody booed. Yes. And it's like, that is the worst thing that could happen to Trump if we want him to talk about vaccination, because all he cares about is what the audience says. Yeah. And he's just going to tune his message like crazy and really go with that, you know? 
Uh, there's a, a Cornell uh, study that you uh, note that, quote, people reported believing on average that they went to fewer parties, had fewer friends, dine out less, saw their extended family less, and were further removed from the inner circle or in crowd than their peers. So what? why is that? What's what's going on there? So yeah, this is a really fascinating study by uh, Sebastian Derry, who's a graduate student here at, at uh, Cornell and some of his colleagues. And basically they were looking at this interesting sort of flip of an old effect. So for a long time, people have shown that people tend to be overconfident in all sorts of things. Like we think we're smarter than other people. We think we're less biased. We think we're more moral. And like the saying goes, the average person thinks they're, you know, a better driver than the average person, a smarter person than the average person, right? Which is statistically impossible. Um, But they wanted to look at, okay, what about certain domains where it seems like people actually might be underconfident. And so they asked questions instead about like how smart you are. Instead, they asked, how many friends do you have? How often do you mm-hmm. go out? You know, how big is your social circle? And it turns out that when they asked those kinds of questions, these like social questions, people said, I'm less social than the average person. And their explanation for that is basically, you know, we when we think about like how social am I? We think of, you know, the influencers on like Instagram who are posting every party that they're at and talking about all their friends and look like they're always like dining out at the best restaurants, right? And so you see this and you kind of compare yourself to them as the exemplars of what it means to be social. And we're always going to fall short when we compare ourselves to people like that. And so we think that actually we're less than average when obviously, you know, the average person can't actually be less social than average. This feels really interesting, and it feels like a whole new area of study. We just had Jay on talking about the power of us, right, and social identity and, and how that ultimately changes us. And I think you're probably referring to, like, is it the Dunning-Kruger effect is the overconfidence? Um, yeah, so that's the one where once you know, uh, you know, the less you know about something, the more confident you are. And then yes, yeah. as you become more expert, you get underconfident. So it's, it takes it a little further where there's yeah. like this kind of U-shaped curve. Yeah. But I think about that. I think about the extended mind. I think about some of these other things that there's like all these dualities at play that, that we used to sort of think just, you know, we're not good at thinking that the, about those because we just, it's much easier to think, you know, singularity. Um, and I thought this was fascinating. And I actually went down the hallway with various staff members and I asked them what they thought the median Twitter account had in terms of followers. <laughs> so I had one person say a million. Uh, I had another person say 500. And then my uh, savant friend, Alex, uh, across the hallway said 60. Uh, one off, 61, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. That's impressive. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. We think, again, when we think of like Twitter and Instagram, we think of the people who use it a ton and have a ton of followers. Um, And actually, like if you were to look at the average, that drags the average up if you're going to get all statistical about it. But if you actually look at like the median, most people don't have that many followers. And so if you have some, you're doing much better than you think. Uh, The other thing I thought was funny in here, you know, we get brought into a lot of businesses um, because in improv, you need to listen to the end of sentences because the other person on stage might have crucial information. But of course, we don't do that in real life. And our, our contention is, you know, you might be missing something. And I'm like, oh, that's fuzzy trace theory right there at, at play, right? Yeah, you know, people always make fun of me because I never read to the end of emails. Like I respond to an email and then they're like, that was in the end because <laughs> I just have no attention span for a full email. Um, but yeah, so 
fuzzy trace theory is basically this idea that, you know, we hear something that someone says and we hear the details and we hear the gist of it, but then we pretty quickly forget the details and just mm-hmm. remember the gist. It's like, yeah, I, you know, I don't know exactly what his argument was. I just know that he was arguing for this thing. Right. Yeah. 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 And I mean, and for, you know, for us who we, we invent our, our work on stage with other people. So you have to listen to the end of sentences. You also have this idea around yes and, right? Where you have to uh, not say no to it. You have to build on it no matter what it is. And that creates a very different kind of experience. And, and we found very successful over the years. Um, I loved the, st- and I hadn't, I don't think I'd ever come across this study. Uh, the one about finding the gym at Columbia University. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain that and, and the phenomenon that's going on there? Yeah, so that is actually one of the many studies I've done where instead of bringing in people, you know, we started off with bringing people into the lab and sending them out to give people compliments. Instead, I have a bunch of studies where we bring people into the lab and we have them go out and ask people for things. And so we've had them ask for all sorts of things, you know, just basic things like, will you fill out the survey? Uh, Can I borrow your cell phone so I can make a call? And then the one you're referring to, basically, there's this gym at Columbia. It's on like the Northwest side of uh, the campus. And it's kind of hard to find. It's like underground. And so we would bring our participants down to the South side of campus and have them ask people and say, you know, I can't find the gym, which was pretty good cover story, given how hard it is to find, you know, will you walk me there? And so people who agreed would basically walk them like three city blocks Mm -hmm. up to this gym. And in all of these studies, we would ask people, how many people do you think you'll have to ask before you get, you know, five to agree to fill out a survey, three to agree to give you your phone. In this case, it was like one to take you to the gym. Um, And in every case, people think that they're going to have to ask many more people than they actually have to ask. So usually twice as many people as they have to ask. So in the gym study, every other person they asked just agreed and actually walked them three city blocks to this gym. But they thought that they were going to have to ask like six or seven people before one person would agree. So I thought it was really interesting to dig in why people have a hard time saying no uh, to stuff. And you, you talk about protecting people's face. That, 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 that's fascinating to me. Can, can you go into that? Yeah. And so this follows from sort of these studies where people agree more than we think. And I'll tell you, when I run these studies, people, you know, they really dread going out there. They think it's going to be really hard. Yeah. They go out there, they do this, they come bounding back, like really happy. Like, oh my gosh, people are so nice. I can't believe it was so easy to get people to, to agree. And that's where we kind of know what we don't tell them that it's not necessarily because people were so happy to agree, but because it's really hard to say no. Uh-huh. Right. So when, when someone's standing there in front of you, asking you for something, it's really hard to say no to them. And we're so aware of how hard it is to have someone say no to us. Like we're super attuned to the pain of rejection, but we're less attuned to the pain of doing the rejecting. Um, And that actually it's really uncomfortable. It insinuates something about the other person, right? If someone's standing there asking you for your phone and you say, no, what does that say? It says, I don't trust you. You know, who are you? What are you going to do with my phone? And it, basically threatens their face. It threatens sort of this assumption we're supposed to make about people that they're, you know, good, honest, moral people that we can trust. Uh, And so it feels really uncomfortable in the moment. And we feel like we have to come up with some really good excuse. We can't just say no, because then you're insinuating something really bad about this person. 
And then the other powerful emotion here is embarrassment, right? That, that people don't yes. like you do anything not to be embarrassed. Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of it, like that's all sort of the academic ease of why, but at the end of the day, the real like core visceral thing is that it's just really, really embarrassing and awkward. Yeah. I, is embarrassment different than shame or are they cousins? They're, I mean, they're cousins. So basically there's moral emotions or guilt, shame, embarrassment, and pride. Um, mm-hmm. And they're all, you know, they can be distinguished from one another, but um, basically shame people will say is kind of a more intense kind of version of embarrassment. But at the same time, we see embarrassment have these really big effects on people. Like for example, um, you know, a sort of classic, really dramatic example is if you're choking at the dinner table and you're mm-hmm. surrounded by people who can help you, what do you do? You walk away, right? The impulse is like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I have to leave. And so many people will just leave the table and go to the bathroom or something to avoid the fear of embarrassment. And they're basically like putting them, their lives at risk doing this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So embarrassment, I, you know, sometimes it's called a, a, like a cousin of shame that's like less intense, but it's unclear to me that it's actually less intense. Yeah, right, right, right. And then this leads to some pretty dark stuff when you sort of explore in the in the following chapter, like the Aziz Ansari story, which I think many people know in terms of this article with this uh, woman who called herself Grace about the fact that they had this sexual relationship, but she really did regretted it and didn't want it in the moment, but he didn't pick up on the signals. So then you, you dig into a lot of studies in this area that, I mean, when, I, I'll, I'll let you sort of talk about what, what, what shows up in that chapter. Yeah. So, you know, just like it's hard for people to say no when we're asking them for like a favor or something, it's also hard for them to say no to things that they really don't want to do. So if you ask someone for a favor, for the most part, you know, they do it and they feel pretty good about themselves afterwards. And, you know, for the most part, they are actually happy to help someone out. Um, But there are other cases where someone really does feel uncomfortable, such as in the case of, you know, being pursued by someone you're not interested in sexually or romantically. Um, And so, for example, we have some studies just asking people to remember or imagine a time that they either hit on someone who wasn't interested in them and just ask them on a date like at work um, or the opposite, like someone else hit on them or asked them out on a date. And when you ask people like, how hard was it to say no? How uncomfortable would someone feel saying no? When you're the one who has to do the rejecting, you're like, that was really uncomfortable. When you're the one being rejected, you're like, ah, that was easy for them to reject me. And that sets up these problematic dynamics where you're like, well, I'll just ask and you know, they can just say no if they're not interested when the other person actually does feel pretty uncomfortable about the whole situation. Yeah. The other thing that was really uh, sort of upsetting is this idea that I didn't realize was a thing, which is wearing wedding rings to job interviews for mm-hmm. women. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, I get asked this all. It's it's strange how often my junior colleagues have asked me. You know, I, I either I read something or someone told me I shouldn't wear my wedding ring to an interview, um, and it's because there's this concern that people are going to think you won't take the job that seriously. That at the end of the day, you won't like relocate because you have a spouse, and there's this assumption, especially for women, that the man's job is going to take precedent. So you're not actually going to be able to move this person. And unfortunately, there's research showing that that is true, that people do think that people who are married or have kids are less devoted to their jobs. And so there is sort of an incentive to hide that that wedding ring. Oh, that's terrible. 
I, I mean, like, like moms are superheroes. I, I don't know. Like the, the moms who work here and there's many are, are amazing. It just, it, it belies everything. Um, there was a, uh, a par- paragraph or a, a few sentences that you wrote that I actually posted on LinkedIn and got a bunch of people commenting on. And this is about power. And you write, together, these two aspects of power, a reduction in perspective taking and an increase in the tendency to view others as having the freedom to do what they want, can have the counterintuitive effect of making people in positions of power especially likely to underestimate their influence over other people. Wow, that's a that's a that's wild. Yeah, you know, you would think kind of that if you're in a position of power that you're super aware of the influence yeah. you have. Like, oh, I walk around and I can, you know, get people to do stuff. But it's kind of fascinating that there are these psychological effects of having power that make us especially uh, blind to sort of the influence that we have over other people. So, as you said, you know, when we're in positions of power, we are less likely to take the perspectives of other people for the simple reason that we just don't need to as much, right? Like when you're the one in power, you control the resources. You don't need to sort of know what's going on in someone else's mind as much to be able to sort of get them to share their resources with you from like a fundamental sort of uh, perspective. And at the same time, when you're in a position of power, you can kind of choose more readily what you want to do. You don't have to conform to the situation. You know, if someone asks you to do something, you could be like, I'm not going to do that, you know? Um, And so we assume other people can do that too. So it winds up being this, you know, really problematic dynamic where just when people are finding it hardest to say no to you, if you ask for something, Mm -hmm. you are really bad at recognizing how hard it is for them to say no to you and think that they can just say no if they feel uncomfortable, you know, with whatever you're asking. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think back to my time when I had a lot of people reporting to me when I was the producer of the theater and, you know, stating that I had an open door policy and all, all these other things and people don't use it. And it's like, I was like, oh, no, you've got to pull people in the door. You have to really work hard to get people to actually tell you the truth. And, you know, and, and you've got to want you're good to be a good leader is to be uncomfortable a lot. Uh, and I think our, our tendency is to not, you know, want, want to be uncomfortable. You, I also had a former colleague who once said, I don't see race. Um, and you quote, I think it's Shannon Sullivan here who said, quote, if you can't see race, then how the heck are you going to see racism? And I thought that was a brilliant retort to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that is another place where we underestimate our influence. And that is partly the result of systemic power. Again, these sort of elements of power. So, for example, people who are in power positions, which systemically, you know, white people tend to be. Uh, so white people in America, they can kind of avoid learning about their black colleagues like watching black movies and reading books by black authors and kind of even just paying attention to the dialogue around things that are going on in african-american communities right we can kind of avoid that in a way that if you're black in america you can't avoid white culture Um, and yeah and because of that we can be kind of oblivious to things that we say that might, you know, be hurtful and oblivious to kind of, you know, the way we might treat certain people as like exotic because we don't, you know, understand exactly what the dialogues are that are going on. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but there was one thing that came sort of towards the end of the book that reminded me of an exercise that we teach. Uh, you write in the book, quote, to truly understand our influence over others, we must not only see the ways in which our actions impact others, but we also then need to be able to understand how these actions actually feel to others. So we have this exercise we do called thank you statues, where we have people go into a circle and one person uh, volunteers to go in the middle of the circle and strike a statue pose. And then we say to everyone, okay, uh, now someone from the circle go in 
tap that person out, do a new pose. They say, thank you. And they resume the circle, go. And then no one moves. Uh, and, we're, and, and so we're like, okay, how, do you, and how does this feel uh, to the person? They're, they have all these reasons for, for not going in, but it's like that person in the middle just wants to be unfroze. And, and, and so everyone starts to embody the feeling and then we have them do it. And then they, they, they participate and they feel that rush of actually helping someone. So I think that's kind of what you're talking about, right? This, this is, if you don't have the embodied uh, uh, feeling, it's doubtful that you're really going to change your behavior. Yeah. And it's, you know, it goes back to something you said earlier, you know, you made this distinction between taking perspective and giving perspective, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then there's also, you mentioned Nick Epley earlier, he and his colleagues have another version, which is getting perspective. And so yes. what they talk about is like taking perspective, you know, we can say like, oh, I know what it feels like to be in someone's shoes. But in fact, if you're not asking them, if you're not sort of finding a way to embody that, um, and you're not finding out sort of directly from them how they feel, you're just kind of relying on your own, you know, ideas about how they must feel. And so what they talk about is you really need to get perspective. You need to actually, you know, get in touch with what that person is actually feeling instead of just kind of knowing in general, yeah, I probably impacted that person, you know, really getting to the heart of like, oh, and that felt a certain way. Yeah. That, I mean, that was, I, I remember Nick saying something to me about you can't know another person's mind. Um, and the only way is like, ask a lot of questions. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. Okay. And that, and cause people aren't going to readily give you the information, but then also you can create very quick bonds by simply sharing with someone else. We actually quick created a bespoke exercise with, with Epley and those guys around that, um, called universal unique, where it's, it's like you have one person sort of say how people grocery shop. Then you have uh, a person say how they grocery shop. And invariably, when they tell how they do it, it's richer, detailed, different. You're laughing. You do the same goofy things. And, and it's, it's quite a different experience. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's great. All right. Uh, so we always end the podcast by asking for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I do. You know, I don't know if it's so much a story as a like perspective shift for me, but I was so happy to get this question because... I realized I never used this language, but this is totally how I started approaching um, lots of things in my career. So basically, you know, as a psychologist and an academic, the name of the game is sort of scientific publication, right? Mm-hmm. It's publisher parish world. And so, you know, the sort of like publications need to be peer reviewed to be sort of valid um, and sort of count for you. And so what you do basically for peer review is you write this, you know, paper that you've spent years working on and have just like put all your blood, sweat and tears into, and you submit it to a journal where, you know, three, somewhere between two and like four anonymous experts of to more or less degree, uh, read your work and then critique you on it. And those critiques can range from anything from like constructive criticism that's really helpful to, you know, being way off base to being like just downright nasty and you just never really know. Um, And so, you know, over the years, I've worked with a bunch of different people and seen how all these different people will respond to these critiques. And so I feel like they kind of fall into three categories. One is no, right? Mm -hmm. You read them and you're just like, no way. I'm not making any of these changes and that never goes well because you don't improve your work or it's just like, yes. And then you just want to crawl under the desk and die because you're like, they're right. They tore it apart. There's like no point. But I realized that early on, I had a mentor who was just fabulous at kind of demonstrating this yes and approach where it's like, every time someone comes up with a critique, assume that it's a valid one. Like they read it. That's their experience. You know, it's coming from somewhere. Someone else is going to have that same thought. 
and then work with that, right? And then make it your own, do something with it. You know, sometimes it is arguing back, but sometimes it's, you know, adjusting based on what they said. Um, but basically that, that general approach, it helped with scientific publication, but now writing the book, like with my editor, you know, every time it just takes the sort of defensiveness out. Cause like each time, you know, you're just going to say, yes, yes. I, whatever you said is valid. I'm going to go with it. And then I'm going to figure out what to do with it. You know, I am going to work from there. And I really think that that perspective has like saved me from not getting too defensive when my work over years and years, right. Has been critiqued constantly. Cause that's just the field I'm in. Yeah, we talk sometimes, uh, we phrase it like this, is you need to replace blame with curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, why, yeah. wh- why, are you, why are you doing that? And that's a very useful way to de-escalate a situation, both for yourself and the person who's across from you. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. The book is called You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. Vanessa Bonds, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris, with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.